Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture Presents Great News A teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the Law of Moses, and the Kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com. Find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. Jesus came to challenge the ideas that the religious people had. Sermon on the Mount really illustrates that very well. We went through in depth all the different sections of the Sermon on the Mount, how it really takes people from a religious mindset, changes their mind. Remember that idea of repentance is about changing your heart and mind, about turning around, going in a different direction. And Jesus says, turn away from even religiosity, not just from sin, but even from this this narrow religious thinking and understand what it means to be a child of God, to be a son or daughter of God, to be a disciple, to be someone who follows Jesus. This is what Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 4, 19, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We'll see it again, those words, follow me in this section that we'll look at tonight. Uh, Just for time's sake, we're not going to read all of Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Instead, we're going to uh, just look at it section by section and sort of talk about the implications of uh, everything that you'll see there. So keep this in mind, coming out of Sermon on the Mount, we've got this idea of religion versus discipleship, because the people of the day, they they believed in God, they showed up at the synagogue, they obeyed the rules, um, they, they did what they thought was enough, they did what they thought was required of them in order to be in God's good graces. And Jesus comes with new teaching, which isn't uh, it's, it, it sounds new on the surface, but really it's, it's the, uh, the original teaching at its core, the, but it sounds so new. It's a new teaching because it, it breaks open all of the religious boxes that everyone has built for themselves. And so we're going to, uh, see how that plays out in this next section. At the end of the last lesson, uh, a week ago, <clears throat> I left you with this question. What's an aspect of your life where God does not yet fully reign? And this is really the idea behind the Sermon on the Mount is that the kingdom has arrived. 
Remember when we say kingdom, what we mean is God's reign, not, not the physical kingdom, not the, the place that God rules over, not even the people that God rules over, but rather the state of God being king, God's kingness, the kingness of God has shown up, has arrived, is near, is at hand. It's right here. It's in front of you. Right. And so when God, the king walks in, what part of your life is he not yet really have control over? It's not that he doesn't have authority over it um, uh, because of something that he lacks. You know, in, in, a, in an existential way, he has authority over it because he has authority over everything. But maybe we've taken a part of our life and it doesn't behave as if God is reigning over it. Perhaps we have put it in our own box or we uh, pull it away from God's story and we use it for our, our own reasons. What's an aspect of your life where God's reign is not yet fully in effect? That's really the question that we're asking. I hope that you thought about that since the last time that we were together. I really want these questions to be something that you, you put on a post-it note and put it on the bathroom mirror or, um, you know, you, you, you screenshot on your phone as the question is on the screen like it is now. And you put that, you know, as your uh, lock screen so that you, every time you're, 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 uh, you open your phone, you see it. Um, but do something, do something where this question will, will stay with you will uh, keep going on in your mind and you'll keep asking yourself this question and constantly um, assessing, doing self-assessment. Remember, these questions are not to point at somebody else, right? Jesus makes a big deal talking about judgment and judging others. Be careful to judge others, right? So the, the point here is self-assessment. How can I take these ideas? How can I take these thoughts? How can I take these teachings? How can I take this scripture and point it at myself, not to condemn myself, not to uh, get down on myself, not to be angry at myself, not to realize what a loser I am, but but how can I shine light into the darkness, pla- the darkest places of myself to find where, where is it I have not yet let God's reign come in and make everything new, come in and change everything. Remember, this is great news. This isn't about ruining fun. This isn't about uh, finding out what a terrible person you are. This is about the reign of God showing up and changing everything and making you totally new, making you brand new in every possible way. And so the last thing we want to do is keep some dark corner, um, dark corner hidden away where uh, God is not able to come in and make everything new. So we've talked about how Matthew is broken up into Five big chunks. So you have kind of some bookends. You have uh, Jesus, uh, sort of the birth narrative and the genealogy and those kinds of things at the beginning. And at the end, of course, you have the passion, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. But in, in between that, the majority of Matthew, chapters 3 through 24 or so, is five major discourses. And it's actually five narrative and discourses. So we looked at the narrative of, of Jesus arriving on the scene. And then we looked at the first discourse, which was the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, how that really sets up what God's reign is going to look like, what it looks like when God is uh, fully reigning over every aspect of life. That's the first narrative and discourse. And so I've kind of broken it down this way, just from some notes and some other things that I've looked at. These are the five discourses that you'll find uh, in Matthew. So kingdom announced. That's really what we just finished looking at in part four. Parts three and four of this series were about the kingdom being announced. Jesus shows up and announces uh, that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. God's reign is nigh, is near. 
Jesus begins his ministry and the first thing, Sermon on the Mount, he lays out the groundwork. This is what I'm about. This is the teaching that I have. This is what the kingdom is going to look like. And so now what we're going to see in the next narrative and discourse, it's all about kingdom authority. It's about the authority that Jesus has and who to whom Jesus gives that authority. And so we're going to look at that here in eight and nine before we talk about what is the second major discourse that's coming up, which will be in the next lesson. So we're looking at Matthew's chapter eight and nine. So you can go ahead and pull that up. If you haven't already, I'll be uh, reading from the CSB, uh, Christian Standard Bible made by Holman out of Nashville. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 8. So here you can see the text. And again, we're just going to kind of skim through and look at these stories, talk about a few things along the way. So just reading the first couple of verses here. Chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleaned. So some really amazing things are happening here that we miss because we don't have leprosy in this day and age, but we, but more so, we're not Jews. We're not Orthodox practicing Jews. And so there is a big understanding, which if you'll go all the way back to the, the Genesis series and the wandering series, talking about the, the Jewish people and the law, this idea of purity versus unpurity, cleanliness versus uncleanliness, righteousness versus unrighteousness. This is big dichotomy set up. It's the light versus dark that's set up in the first sentence of scripture. And so leprosy is something that was unclean and by Jewish law made you unclean. And so the idea in the religious sense is that person has leprosy and is unclean. And if I touch them, the uncleanness comes to me and now I am unclean and I could possibly get leprosy because people understood that it was somehow communicated from person to person. And we're experiencing a great deal of this right now, aren't we, with our current situation. We know that there's a virus out there that is making people very sick and it's making uh, some people, uh, they're being hospitalized. Some people are dying because of this illness. I've had um, some friends of friends and some friends that have, have lost relatives uh, due to this illness. I've got friends that are sick with it right now that have got some pretty severe symptoms. And um, so this is a this is a real uh, prescient uh, idea for us to be thinking about this idea that here's somebody that has some uncleanness. And if I touch them, the uncleanness comes off of them and onto me. And now I also am unclean. So when Jesus comes down from the mountain, remember, it's that Moses archetype again. He goes up on the mountain and he delivers the law, right? So the Sermon on the Mount is sort of the new teaching. So now he's coming down from the mountain and the large crowds are there. And right away, the first person that greets him, the first individual that is mentioned besides Jesus is a man with leprosy. This is the uncleanness, the, the uncleanest of the uncleanness, right? So here you have this man with leprosy. He comes up, he kneels before me, says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
Notice the faith that this man has. He he doesn't say, well, I heard about or whatever. He said, in fact, I, I believe this is the first uh, clean uh, healing like this that we'll see uh, specifically. I could be wrong about that. But this and the stories that follow are all a lot of healing type stories. And this is the first in this section. And he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Notice he doesn't say, if you are willing, you can heal me. Which obviously healing him would would eventually make him clean. There's uh, laws about skin diseases. And if the skin disease goes away, you go and show yourself to the priest. And after a certain amount of time, you're considered clean again. But he doesn't say, heal me. He says, make me clean. And so Jesus turns the idea of cleanliness on its head in this way. The idea of cleanliness, as you and I think of it, is cleanliness doesn't really exist. It's dirt that exists. Cleanliness is just sort of the absence of dirt, right? Um, The idea of purity, purity is not necessarily something that exists. It's it's the absence of impurities. Isn't that kind of how we think about it, right? Um, If we're going to clean the house, we don't add something to it. We, We take things away. If we're going to clean the floor, we're not going to add something to it. We're going to take it away. Well, I mean, we might add soap, but that's just so it will pick up the things and take it away, right? So um, in the same way that we think of, uh, you know, there's no such thing as dark, just an absence of light, right? Uh, then we have the same kind of idea here. Well, there's no such thing as clean, really. It's just an absence of filth. There's no such thing as purity. It's just an absence of impurity. Jesus turns that idea on its head by being the contagious one in this scenario. So you have the man with leprosy, something that was considered highly contagious, and ritualistically, uh, biologically, spiritually, was unclean. But when Jesus touches him, the thing that you shouldn't do, because if you touch somebody with leprosy, now you're unclean. Jesus touches him, and rather than the uncleanness going from the man with leprosy to Jesus. Instead, the opposite happens. Cleanliness goes from Jesus to the man with leprosy in such great supply that the man is healed and immediately made clean. So do you see that again in the text? I know this is a lot of explaining for a very short amount of text, but it sets up all the other texts that we're going to look at. He comes down from the mountain. Man with leprosy comes up, kneels before him saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so Jesus here following Torah law, following the law about skin diseases. Because remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come here to abolish the law. That was a rumor that was going around in the early days of the church. Jesus came to get rid of Judaism and the law. And Jesus says, no, I came to fulfill it. And I came to fulfill it in such a way to show that purity is what's going to be contagious when I'm around. Cleanliness is what's going to be contagious when I'm around. Righteousness is what's going to be contagious when I'm around. Faith is what is going to be contagious when I'm around. That brings us to our next story. The centurion. Uh, centurion comes in, says that he's paralyzed in terrible agony. Jesus says, am I to come and heal him? 
This is amazing. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, he says in verse 8. But just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority. Here's the word. That's what we're talking about, kingdom authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Now, imagine that. Imagine you're one of these people following Jesus. You're in the crowd following Jesus. You've heard the Sermon on the Mount. You uh, maybe, he, maybe you're Peter. Maybe you're Andrew. He called you out of the boat. You're there with him. You see this centurion who, who may be a Gentile, may possibly be a Gentile. He might be uh, a Jewish person, someone in Herod's army. Herod liked to use the, the, the Gentile terms for, um, for his uh, soldiers as well. So it's difficult to say for sure whether he was Jewish or, or Gentile, uh, but certainly not part of the Jewish religious com- uh, ceremony uh, community, Jewish religious community. And he appears to sort of be new to Jesus, meeting him here for the first time. So imagine being someone who has been following Jesus now for a little bit, being in this crowd of uh, followers and Jesus turning to you and saying, wow, I've never found anybody like this guy. It'd <laughs> be kind of infuriating, wouldn't it? Kind of hurts your feelings a little bit. I think that might be kind of the point. A lot of these stories as you go through really turn everything upside down, really turn everything on its head. So here you see someone, an unlikely disciple, but they're the ones that have the great faith. Do you, do you remember those of you that were doing uh, the Samuel series with us, the After God's Own Heart series? Remember when the Jewish people really kind of despised the Ark of the Covenant and ended up losing it in war because they treated it so rashly and foolishly? And then what did the Philistines do? They understood the power and they actually showed respect to it in the best way that they could. Um, the, long enough to get it out of their, out of their city anyway. But the story sets up as many stories in the Old Testament show that when God's people are off doing their own thing, off doing their sinful thing, many times it's the Gentiles, it's the people who aren't God's people that do the right thing. Think of the story of Jonah. You have Jonah, the prophet of God that doesn't want to do the right thing. And then you have the city of Nineveh, the big city, just den of evil, iniquity. And what do they do? You know, three-second sermon and all of them convert in just the most dramatic way possible. I mean, this is a story, like many stories in the Old Testament, about how uh, it, it's it's really what our, our mindset and our heart is. It's not just the label that we have on ourselves. It's because we sit in a pew, just because we go to church. Just because we go to you know, the right kind of church, you got the sticker on our car, or um, you know, don't cuss too much, and um, smile at our neighbor, or whatever, whatever we think the markings of being a Christian are. Just because we do those things doesn't necessarily mean. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Some people are going to say, "But Lord, didn't I do all these very Christian things in your name?" And what is Jesus going to say to some of those people? I'm sorry, who are you again? Because we never had a relationship. Because I was moving and you didn't follow me. I said, follow me. I said, go where I go. Hear what I hear. Hear what I teach. Say what I teach. Live what I teach. Follow me. Mimic me. But did you do that? Yeah, you did these things in my name and you did some religious things and you checked some boxes. You met some criteria. You you joined a club. You were a church member. But I don't know you. We didn't know each other. What Jesus is saying in this story is this guy gets it. This guy knows 
who I am. And he understands the idea of authority. When you have authority over something and you give it a command, it obeys. And so Jesus is setting up a big idea about authority. And so what you're going to find, remember what he says is, hey, if you're a branch, but you're not producing fruit, you're going to get cut off and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist said it. Jesus has said it. Jesus says it again to the 11 after the uh, Last Supper. We read that in uh, Gospel of John. And so there's this idea that the people of God aren't the ones that are have the right genetics. They're not the ones that are part of the right groups. They're not the ones who live in the right places. They're not even the ones who necessarily behave right and do all the right things. The people of God are the ones who are under God's authority and let God's authority continually grow in them. Here's a man who understood authority and that demonstrated how great a faith he had in Jesus's authority. And so you see, after Jesus is astonished, he uh, heals his servant. The servant from far away is healed at that very moment. So then we have more healings going on at Capernaum. And it says, Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever and he heals her there. And so I just want to bring up Capernaum just a little bit. This is kind of um, a little bit of a uh, side note, but I think it's a, an interesting thing for you to see. I've been to Capernaum twice now and uh, don't have any of my video that I took loaded up to show you, unfortunately. But I do have some pictures that I quickly just pulled off the internet to kind of show you what Capernaum looks like today. So the picture that you're seeing on the left is sort of a bird's eye view, sort of an overhead view. This is taken with a, a drone or something like that. There's no hillside there. You can see it's right on the Galilee. It's right on the coast. Uh, the building in the background there, sort of the um, kind of courthouse or church looking building, that's that's a modern building. That's where, you know, the gift shop and all that, and the, the ticket office and all that stuff is. This is kind of a, a, a place where tourists come to look. And so it's all gated off. The white building that you see in the bottom right corner of this photo, that is a synagogue. Now that synagogue dates to third or fourth century. And as people were digging out from under it, they found that there is an older, cruder, an older, more crude foundation beneath it. And it was typical practice when there was a synagogue um, that you have to build a, uh, you build on the foundation of the old synagogue. And so the belief is the foundation that is under the synagogue that you, ruins that you see here is the first century synagogue. In other words, the synagogue where Jesus absolutely taught and worshiped and spent time. And that is further confirmed as they began digging out the ancient city of Capernaum. And so you see the ruins in the center and the bottom left of this photo. As they began digging out the ruins, they came across a room that was very different from a lot of the other rooms that they were digging out. This room is under, if you look right in the, the left center of the photo, you see something that looks kind of like a spaceship. Kind of like a UFO. It's a big octagon and it's raised up off the ground. That's actually a church. And that church is floating over um, what you see in the picture right here on the bottom right. So uh, this picture here in the bottom right, what you see there, you see it's kind of a, 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 some concentric octagons with kind of a, a circle or a square or something in the middle. It's kind of crude, kind of hard to make out. This was an octagonal church 
that uh, like a maybe a Byzantine era church that was built over a room that was found in these excavations. This room had uh, originally been just sort of like a um, uh, looked like it was just a normal like a sleeping room, like a bedroom, but it had been uh, plastered over with white, which you you would do that in meeting rooms. So it bounces the light around so you can see better, even at night when you have lamps and things like that, it just bounces the light around. Uh, you all know that. You've seen the Instagram posts with people with these really white rooms. This is why we put white or off-white colors on our walls so that the rooms feel brighter and bigger and sort of bounce the light around. Um, obviously, much more important in a time when you did not have electricity. And so it was clear that this room that was once a bedroom had been turned into a, a meeting room of some kind. And there's actually graffiti on the wall in this room that essentially says Jesus was here. It's not Jesus's handwriting, but it rather it's a, it's a note saying this was the room where Jesus stayed, where Jesus lived. And so by all accounts, we believe that this is the room, that this was Peter's mother-in-law's house. And this is where Jesus stayed as he was operating out of Capernaum. It's right across the street from the synagogue. And if you go look in Mark chapter two of this incident, Jesus is uh, teaching in the synagogue and he goes across the street to uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house. And sure enough, here it is right across the street from the first century synagogue. So what you're seeing in the top right picture is the inside of the church. So um, if you go visit Capernaum, you can go up into the church. And as you can see there in the middle, it looks kind of like a swimming pool. Basically, it's a big open area with a glass top, and you can look right down into this room. If you look under the church uh, from the outside, then you can see just in the open air, you can look down and see uh, the ruins there. Again, I've been there a couple of times, and it's really, really cool. So um, I just wanted you to see that because I think that it's uh, pretty awesome. Uh, another reason I want you to see it is anytime you see things from the Bible, um, places from the Bible, you see where they really are. Suddenly the Bible becomes much more real. Remember, that's one of the things I'm really trying to do for my audience is demystify scripture. There's no reason scripture should be mystical, spiritual texts. It's, it's really on the ground stories written for people. If God's trying to communicate with people, he's not going to communicate in a bunch of esoteric, hard to understand, uh, uh, spiritual, you know, Gnostic kind of, kind of ways. He's not going to do that. He's going to communicate in ways that people who want to understand will be easily able to grasp it. This is why Jesus teaches in parables. People who don't want to understand, they look at it on the surface and they go, I don't know what he's talking about. But people who want to understand, they will dig their teeth into the parable and they will understand the deeper meanings. And so when I show you pictures like this of Capernaum, you see, hey, this is a real place. This is a place where Jesus was and it's confirming just little nuances of scripture that help us understand that scripture is likely true. Here's another thing. Later in the Gospels, Jesus will announce woes to various cities. And um, uh, many of those cities that he announces woes to are still ruins to this day, that one day they fell into ruins. And still to this day, the only reason anyone visits them is to see their ruins. Cities like Chorazin is one of them. Jesus says, oh, if the miracles, you know, that were uh, done in you had been done out in the land of the Gentiles, they all would have converted. And What's the problem? The people are so desperately clinging to their religion, they're unable to take Jesus's newer, bigger teaching. 
So let's continue seeing this demonstrated over and over again. You, you may find some of the things that I'm saying a little hard to grasp, but as we see these stories told over and over again in these two chapters, I think you'll start to understand what we're getting at here. So after these healings at Capernaum, again, this is Jesus' sort of base of operations in the Galilee. Notice once again, we have a prophecy from Isaiah talking about the suffering servant. Then we get to verse 18, and we see this large crowd, and he's trying to get away from them, and we have some people. So one of them is a scribe. So again, it's a very religious person, someone who's dedicated their life to the work of the Lord approaches Jesus and says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And rather than Jesus saying, great, hop in or come on, Jesus gives him kind of a really downer warning. Sounds like foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is letting this scribe, uh, possibly a young man, Jesus is letting this man know, following me is serious business and it's going to cost you everything including the things that you think are basic necessities, like a place to live. Now, many of us, many of you listening, would consider yourself faithful to Jesus. Has it cost you your place to live yet? I, I cannot say that following Jesus has cost me my place to live yet. Um, the idea of following Jesus costing me my home is a little terrifying. It's really scary. Um, but that's what Jesus says. Hey, you want to follow me, man? I'm homeless. That's what it means. And if you consider somebody who's a scribe, somebody who's part of the religious structure, remember the religious structure was not just sort of a side note in Jewish culture. I mean, that was the heartbeat of the culture. Uh, the, their, their Supreme Court was their religious court, the Sanhedrin. Their, their king was uh, really tied in with the, the theology. Think about King David, right? It was really tied in with uh, the, the spiritual worship and the temple and these kinds of things. And so uh, the idea of religion was very much tied into status in this first century culture. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're a scribe and you have status. And if you want to follow me, you're going to lose all of your status. Are you willing to do that? Notice it doesn't give the answer that the man gives. We don't know if the man ends up following Jesus or not, because that's not the point. The point is, will we follow Jesus? And so we're left with the question in our own mind. Another person wants to follow Jesus, but he says, first, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This seems like a very callous and insensitive response to someone that wants to follow Jesus. But let's look and see really what's going on here. So the, the, the way of Jewish burial in the first century was to uh, have a period of time that was sort of the main funeral. This was seven days. And so you would wrap the body in a lot of spices and perfumes because as the body decays, it's going to smell bad. We know that you smell any dead animal under your house or in the road, you know how quickly the smell comes. The same thing happens with the human body. And so um, you've seen this on any kind of true crime or you know law and order or whatever, then the neighbors will notice the smell of this, this dead body, right? Or uh, Silence of the Lambs where they peel the body bag back and they all have to put the the sort of the menthol you know, on their lip to, um, to, to bear the smell. So, uh, we, we, we put perfume and spices on bodies, uh, so that, uh, it covers up the smell. We put them in a grave slot, which could be like a bench, or it could be like a, kind of like a tube going back where you sort of slide them in almost like a, not to be crass, but like a pizza oven or something. It's like a, it's like a domed 
uh, when it's flat on the bottom and you, you slide them in and the body stays there and the tomb is not just like in the side of a mountain or something like that. It's, there's a cave that's uh, either naturally formed or been dug out of the side of the mountain. And in the cave, there are multiple little rooms. And in those rooms is where you have the grave slots. One place that you can see this is in uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in uh, Jerusalem, which is built on the spot that many believe, and which I believe is uh, Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, and the site of his tomb, which is just a few feet away. Again, confirming the events of Scripture. A large uh, sort of mini church has been built inside over the place where Jesus was supposedly buried. But really, that's sort of the first uh, grave slot in the tombs that were found and has been dug out to, to kind of build this church on top of. But behind there, there's a room where there are a couple of empty grave slots that have been left untouched for 2000 years. And you can go in that room and see what those grave slots are like. It's quite possible Jesus was buried in one of those very slots. A uh, really remarkable thing to think about that you can just go and touch. You can get in the slot. Nothing prevents you from climbing in there yourself and experiencing uh, the very place possibly where Jesus himself was buried. You know, remember he wasn't uh, put in a coffin with dirt poured over him, but instead he was wrapped with spices and perfumes by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus put into this tomb that was meant for rich people. It was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. No one had ever been in it before. Again, that idea of cleanliness, purity, righteousness, being treated like a king. Nicodemus, the, he brings, I think, 75 pounds of spices, which was, that's how you bury your royalty. That's not how you bury a homeless self proclaimed rabbi from, from Fishertown, um, from Galilee. And so uh, the body would lay in a grave slot for seven days. The family would come and visit often, stay down there almost around the clock and, and mourn and cry together and um, just spend a, a, a heavy period of time in grief. And then they would leave. And then you would have a year later, you would come back and you would collect the bones and you would put the bones in what's called an ossuary. And so an ossuary is just a stone box. And so here are examples of some ossuaries. Lots of times, like this one here, which I think is called the, the Caiaphas ossuary. Um, and so I believe it's the one that the Caiaphas of the Bible was buried in, his bones were in. Um, but you see it's very highly decorated and ornamented. The one on the top right that you see is more plain, but you see the basic shape. And then uh, just under that, you see that same ossuary with a, with a human being there. So you can get a sense of the scale, how big these are. And so obviously they're not big like a coffin because all you're doing is putting bones in it. All the, 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 Again, if you'll forgive me, the, the, the flesh, the meat has, has rotted away, skin has rotted away. So all you have left is just, is just the bones and they're not attached. All the tendons and everything are gone. And so not being underground, it de decomposes very quickly. And so they would gather up all the bones and they would put them in a box like this. And it's actually really interesting um, that there was really kind of only a short period of time when Jews buried people in this way, but it just happened to be at this period of time. And it lends itself to a lot of really interesting things uh, in the Bible. And so one of them is this story where you have somebody saying, well, let me go and bury my father. So what he's not saying is, you know, my dad's at death's door or my dad just died. We got the funeral tomorrow. Let me bury him. Kind of like maybe how we would. But instead, what he is saying is, I've got this year long burial process that I'm somewhere in the middle of, or perhaps the one year anniversary is coming up soon and we got to go get the bones out. Let me, let me, let me just do that first. 
basically what this person is doing is saying, I like what you're saying. I want to be a part of it, but I got some other stuff to take care of first. How many of us do this? How many of us say, I really want to go all in on discipleship. I really want to start a Bible study with somebody, but I want to know more first. You know, I need to study first. I want to know more about the Bible first. Well, I'm not a good speaker. You know, if I became a good speaker or if I got over my anxiety, then then I'd be able to share the Bible with somebody else. Um, I need to build a relationship with them first before I share Jesus with them. You know, we make all these excuses pushing the discipleship angle down the line, pushing evangelism down the line, pushing Jesus down the line. And so what Jesus says is, hey, I don't have time for that. <laughs> That's what he tells him. He's not being insensitive and callous. He's not being insensitive to someone whose father has just passed away. What he's saying is, if you're going to make excuses that you're just going to keep kicking this can down the road, then enjoy kicking your can because we're moving on and you can follow me or not. So Jesus is very clear about his intentions. All right, only a few minutes left tonight. So let's get through the rest of this text. Next is a remarkable story where the wind and waves obey Jesus. They go out in a boat and everything is uh, tossing them around and they wake Jesus up and say, save us. And Jesus says, why are you even afraid? And uh, calls them, says that they have little faith, rebukes the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And so once again, we would think, in our thinking, there's no such thing as calm, just an absence of turmoil, right? I mean, imagine you've got a, a, a bathtub, right? And the water is all still. You dive your hands into it and you thrash it up and the water gets all over the place, right? And it's all sloshing around and sloshing out onto the floor, okay? You have added turmoil to the calm. Very easy to do. Now that the water is all in turmoil, now put your hands in it and add calm to it. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't do it. It's not physically possible. And yet that's what Jesus does here in the story. He comes amidst turmoil and he adds calm in the same way that he adds cleanliness to the most unclean person you could think of with the leper. In this case, he now adds calm to this situation full of turmoil. And they're amazed that he does it. And he says, um, you guys have little faith. So once again, this is contrasting. When we're looking at the storytelling of Matthew, it's very easy to get trapped and just look at, oh, these guys didn't, these guys had little faith. It's not just that they had little faith. It's that we're meant to compare this to the story of the centurion that we just read two stories ago. The story of centurion who had great faith because he understood authority and he understood what Jesus had authority over. The disciples who had been with Jesus and were on the boat with him did not understand Jesus had authority over the wind and the waves and the, and the whole earth. But now they understand. Now they know and they say, whoa, who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now we see some demons driven out by Jesus. So they come over to the region of the Gadarenes and there's some demons and these demon possessed men. And they are... Um, arguing with Jesus a little bit. And they say, uh, don't send us out of here, but instead send us into this herd of pigs. And so what you need to know about the region of the Gadarenes is that uh, the Sea of Galilee, where we just saw, let me just go back to that picture of Capernaum. Why don't we do that? So when we go back and, and look at uh, Capernaum here, that's on the Galilee. This is on very, uh, pretty much like the pretty north top of Galilee, of the, of the lake of Galilee. It's actually uh, just an extremely large lake. And so if you were going to go on around to the left, you would be traveling east and south 
Okay, so this picture is sort of taken uh, from the northeast looking uh, southwest. So if you're going to go to the left, you go around eastward and southward, and very quickly you would arrive at Gentile territory or in what is the modern day nation of Jordan. So Israel is on the north and west and south side of the Sea of Galilee, but the east side is the nation of Jordan. The east, um, the Jordan River goes right out of the southern end of the Sea of Galilee and makes a uh, dividing line between Israel and modern-day Jordan. And it was pretty much the same at that time that things on the east of the Jordan was Gentile territory. Remember, they crossed over the Jordan to get into the Promised Land. So everything uh, west of the Jordan was you know, uh, God's people's territory. And Galilee was the same. Everything north, south, west was uh, Israel. On the east was the land of the Gentiles. That's why they have a herd of pigs. Obviously, Jews would not have a herd of pigs, right? So this is probably Gentile territory, somebody who's a pig farmer. So we kind of have this question, why does he put them in the pigs and the pigs rush off and, and dive into the water? Don't understand this. This really seems to be a sort of foreshadowing for the judgment day. That even the evil spirits Jesus has authority over to the point that they're all going to die and they're all going to drown. Uh, remember, water to a Jew is turmoil. Look at the story we just had about being out on the water and there being this great turmoil, right? Uh, the waves and the wind, the storm. Um, go back to the language of Genesis 1 and as God's Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, the abyss, the uh, tohu abohu, the topsy turvy, right? The the churn, the darkness, the uh, the ocean. The, these ideas are all um, uh, symbolic imagery to a to a to a Jew, to an ancient Jew, for uh, evil, chaos, unrighteousness, hell. Even Jesus um, uh, talks about hell as a, as a great lake, you know, like a fire. But he talks about it as a lake, right? And so. Uh, by casting the pigs into uh, the abyss, he is saying, I will take, I have authority even over evil spirits. So going back then to our text, just recapping everything here in verse, in, in chapter eight, Jesus has authority over uncleanliness. Uh, Jesus praises the faith of someone outside the religious community uh, and even um really discusses that in detail here. Notice what he says, thrown into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds just like where he cast these pigs, right? We see the healings at Capernaum and uh, we see that um, he's driving out demon-possessed. He's healing people who are sick. Uh, that was sort of his base of operations. We see the cost of following Jesus. People do want to be disciples. Jesus tells them what it's going to take if they really want to do that. And Jesus has authority even over uh, the physical forces, and now here he has authority over the spiritual forces by driving out these demons. Let's move on to chapter 9. So now we have a really remarkable story. So he gets in the boat, he crosses over, he comes to his own town. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. So this would be showing, if it were true, that Jesus has authority over sin, that Jesus can forgive sin. At this, uh, verse 3, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. Well, why is that? Because the only person who can forgive sins is God. 
Everyone knows that. The only person who can forgive sins is God. When Jesus says that he is forgiving sins, he is saying, I am God. I have the power of God. I have the authority of God. Anyone who tries to tell you that Jesus never thought he was God has not read scripture. It's just an impossible belief to have if you know anything about Jesus, what he taught, or the scriptures that were written about him. Here you see right away, immediately, the scribe's first thought is, well, he's blaspheming. He's saying that he is God, that he has the power of God. Perceiving their thoughts is what the next verse says. How could he do that? If you weren't God, how could he know what they were thinking? Perceiving their thoughts. Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. Notice what he's doing here. Okay. He's saying, yeah, your sins are forgiven. They say, well, he's blaspheming because he's obviously not God. Jesus has no way to prove the man's sins really are forgiven. So he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this crippled person, get up and walk. Well, to say your sins are forgiven is easier to say because there's no way to prove that right or wrong. But if you say, get up and walk, you can prove that authority because the guy either gets up and walks or he doesn't. So forgiving sins is easier to say, you know, because who would know? But no one would say, get up and walk, because then it would expect to be proven. And so what happens? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. There's that word again, authority going on. The call of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. This is the very Matthew that we believe uh, composed or compiled this very gospel, which we're reading. And Matthew's a tax collector, and Jesus is reclining in the house with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees see this, and they ask Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher do this? Why does he do these evil, unclean things? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners." This is a big statement that really ought to challenge us, those of us who are Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, this is the great news for you. Those of us who are Christians, this is a warning. Because again, we think we're on the in crowd. We think we're part of the team, right? We're the religious people. You know, we uh, talk real good and we're real nice to people and uh, we don't do too many bad things. We don't cheat on our taxes and we stay in the little box that we've made for ourselves religiously. What Jesus is saying is, hey, if you've got it all figured out, you don't need me. But I'm going to go to the people that need me more than anybody else. You know, in a time like now, it's very frustrating to watch the news, watch people destroying things, setting things on fire, espousing all kinds of worldviews that are just so backwards from what Jesus teaches. And I have to think those are the very people Jesus would seek out. When we watch the news, are we disgusted? Do we feel hateful? Do we feel resentful? Or do we pray for these people? I have to confess, I've not been doing a lot of praying 
for the people that I see just destroying things. People that don't think like me, that think the opposite of me, that think things that I know are, are destroying our culture or destroying um, the, the, the kind of things that Jesus would teach about. When I see them, my first instinct is to be angry. My first instinct is to uh, push them away. You see what Jesus does? Jesus goes into their home and he says, follow me. He doesn't go there to participate in the things that they're doing. In fact, he goes to challenge their worldview. He goes to challenge the things that they're doing. He's going to get them to stop destroying themselves and others and instead learn what it means to follow someone who makes all things new. That's what he's doing. But he goes to where they are and he loves them and he calls them and he says, follow me. And when people chastise Jesus for doing this, he says, you better learn what it means that God desires mercy over sacrifice. Did God command sacrifices? Absolutely. Why? So that people would learn the cost of their sin. Because when they can learn the cost of their sin, they can repent. And they can live in a way that makes things new and not destroys things. And so when people don't have good news, when people don't have the law, when people don't have good teaching, when people don't know Jesus, Jesus goes into that place and he says, I have great news for you. You don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to be angry anymore. You don't have to be hurt anymore. You don't have to be scared anymore. You don't have to uh, experience gender dysphoria anymore. You don't have to uh, uh, be confused about your sexuality anymore. Your family, you don't have to hurt from the brokenness of your family anymore. The, the, the hate between your friends and your brothers and your coworkers and your boss, you don't have to experience that anymore. The sins that you, the addictions that you have, the things that are tying you down, the things that you reach out for to, to, to give yourself a little salve, a little pacification because everything in life hurts. You don't have to live that way anymore. If you follow me, if you leave all that behind and you follow me, I will change you into something new. Not only will I change you into someone who knows how to live outside of those things, because Jesus has authority over all those things. You're now part of a kingdom that has authority over all of those things. Not only will you live in that kingdom and find joy and find release and find freedom, but I will change you into someone who goes out and finds other people who are in the situation that you are in, who, who they themselves right now are enemies of God, and you will turn them into sons of God. I will show you how to do that. If you follow me, if you follow me, I will change you so that you will go out and you will save other people's lives. You will save other people's souls. Jesus is doing the soul saving. Jesus, God is doing the life changing, but he's putting the responsibility in your hands. I am changing you into someone that goes out and seeks and save the lost. That's what I do, Jesus says. And he says to you, I will change you into someone who does that. So fellow Christians that are listening to this, I got to ask you of all the religious things that you're, you're doing, of all the church services that you're streaming or attending, or you're part of a worship band or whatever, whatever things you got going on, how much you read, all the catechisms you've done or whatever, all the rites you've participated in, all the places you visited, whatever, all the religious stuff that you got going on. I have to ask you, have you gone to the people that you hate most and told them that there's good news in Jesus Christ and loved on them until it cost you everything? Because if you haven't done that, I have great news. You can start right now. You can start now. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or how short you've been a Christian. You can start right now. You can change your mind. You can turn around. You can turn your thinking around. And you can be someone like Jesus 
who loves enemies, desires mercy, and seeks people out so that you can show them the love of Christ. Let's finish our text. There's questions about fasting. John's disciples, the Pharisees, asking, um, how come these people fast, but your followers, Jesus, your disciples don't fast? Jesus says, hey, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? This is a wedding, man. We're having a party. (laughs) My disciples, this is my bridal party. Have you ever been to a a lousy wedding? Have you ever been to a boring wedding? Even the worst weddings are like, (laughs) at least you get a good story out of it. It's like they're kind of fun. Jesus is saying, we're having a party, man. There's no fasting right now. Now, there will be a time for fasting. And they they will fast then when I'm taken away. But right now, we're having a party. Then listen to what he says. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. It's kind of a head-scratching response to this thing about fasting. What is Jesus talking about? What Jesus is saying in summary is, the teaching that I have is more than teaching. It's not rules. It's more than rules. You've understood that being a Jew, that being a follower of God, that being religious is this big. I'm here to tell you it's way bigger than that. And if you try and take what I'm doing and cram it into your little box, it's going to rip. It's going to burst. You cannot contain this. And your attempts to cram your religiosity onto the party that we're having, it's not going to work. You cannot fit what I'm doing into your small-minded religion. So it's not that Jesus is against religion as we sort of naturally define religion. Obviously, worshiping Jesus as God is religion, okay? But so many of us have made religion our business or have made religion our hobby or have made it our club or we've made it our validation. I'm a good person because I do enough religious things right. Or uh, I'm a good Christian because I know how to define things out of the Bible most correctly, more correctly than other people. Jesus is saying, if that's the religious box that you're trying to cram me in, I got news for you. I'm going to explode it. I'm going to blow it up because I'm way too big and way too new to fit in your old box. Again, think back to the idea of the ossuaries and trying to take a living being and put them in that box. You can't do it. Jesus is saying, I'm alive. You're trying to put bones in a box. And I'm telling you, I'm the real deal. I'm a living thing. And I'm bigger than the box you're trying to put me in. Finally, there's a girl who died. So Jesus and his disciples uh, got up and followed the man to where the daughter was. He goes in. And uh, we see also the, the woman here that is... Um, healed from bleeding on the way just because of her faith. She knows that Jesus can do it and her faith is what saves her. Jesus says, the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him because they know that she's dead, but he puts the crowd outside. He takes the girl by the hand as she gets up and everyone heard about it. This shows Jesus has authority even over death. In two short chapters, we've shown Jesus has authority over, over everything in life and beyond. Last story here at chapter nine, last couple of stories. 
Jesus heals these blind people. Again, letting us know that just because we can't see, just because we don't have vision, doesn't mean that we're excluded. Jesus can help us help us see if we will walk by faith as these men have. He drives out another demon. And again, you know, there's no point in just putting every story, every time Jesus drives a demon out. Why is this story here? It's because of the response. Look at verse 34. But the Pharisees said he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. When religious people get their wineskins burst, when religious people get their clothes torn, when religious people get their boxes exploded, they don't like it. That's why I ask, what's our first response to people who are doing evil in the world? What's our first response to people that are destroying things? What are, what's our first response to people that are corrupting culture? Is it hatred? Is it anger? Is it to dismiss them as demonic and evil? Stay, let's stay away from them. Or is our first response like Jesus to love them, to tell them good news so they can understand they can be made new? Once again, the religious people are contrasted with the faith of the lowliest people in the story. The final uh, selections of scripture here. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Why does he do this? Again, it's like when he forgave the man of his sins. The reason Jesus does these signs, and if these things still happen on earth today, and I believe that they do. I've heard too many stories uh, to, to, to dismiss them. But if they happen, the ones that I believe, it's, it's also true. The reason they happen is to show that the person showing up with the power of God has the authority of God to teach the word of God. So when you see someone being healed, what you are seeing is a sign that the person doing the healing brings the teaching of the Lord. Jesus forgives sins, but he does the healing so you know that he has the authority to forgive sins. He does the healing so that you listen to his teaching. He opens the eyes so that he can speak to your ears. And so as he goes around and he's doing all this, everyone realizes he has authority. So they listen to the words that he teaches. And remember what he said in Matthew 419, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And he says it again right here. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. When you get on Twitter, when you get on Facebook, when you turn on the news and you see people distressed and dejected, do you have compassion for them? Do you feel pain with them? Do you suffer with them? Do you understand that they're sheep with no shepherd? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All around you, the fields are ripe. No one should be saying, well, I don't, I don't have anybody to share Jesus with. That's <laughs> simply not true. I don't think any of us really say that or believe that. We know the fields all around us are ripe. The question is, are we going to 
let Jesus change us into a disciple who goes out and makes other disciples? Are we going to let our old religious world get exploded so that we can participate in the greatest party of all time? A party that is full of love and healing and making all things new. You're invited. But will you let go of everything in order to follow him? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.